Spirit Radio Podcasts. The US midterm elections are going to take place next week on the 6th of November. Of course, US elections are always a big media event, but I think this one will probably draw even more attention than usual because of the presidency of Donald Trump and the view that these elections are going to have a big influence or somehow show uh, in a way what people feel about him governing during the second half of his term. On the line to give us his thoughts, we have a law lecturer from NUI Galway, Larry Donnelly. Good morning, Larry. How are you? Good morning, Wendy. Okay, let's just start off with explaining exactly the purpose of the midterm elections and how significant they are in American politics. Okay, the midterm elections effectively take place uh, every four years and they take place at the halfway point uh, of the incumbent president's uh, term. And what happens is all 435 seats of the U.S. House of Representatives, the lower house, uh, they're all up every two years. And then in the midterms, one-third of the U.S. Senate seats, so around 34, 35 uh, U.S. Senate seats are also up uh, for re-election. Uh, typically, the, in history, uh, the, on most occasions, the, pres- the incumbent president's party usually gets a kick. They usually don't do as well, and they lose seats. Uh, in the midterm elections. Uh, the two notable ex- exceptions to that, 1998, uh, Bill Clinton in the midst of the Monica Lewinsky scheme, there was a backlash there and his party actually gained seats in 1998. And then in 2002, George W. Bush, uh, the Republicans actually gained seats in that election. That was in the aftermath of, of 9-11. Uh, everyone now is wondering, because of the volatility of the Trump presidency and all of the different factors that are at play that ordinarily wouldn't be at play, people are wondering uh, what kind of midterm this is going to be. What are the big issues, Larry, that are being talked about ahead of the elections and that you think will have an impact on how people vote? Well, the, I mean, I suppose Trump looms large all over all of this. And indeed, to some extent, like it or not, uh, the, refer- the, the midterms are going to be a referendum on his presidency. Uh, and Republicans and indeed some Democrats are positioning themselves uh, largely in keeping with how the president is viewed uh, on their own, in their own uh, congressional district or in their own state. Um, that having been said, the key issues are, are really the same as they, they always are. Uh, that is, how is the economy going? How is there money in people's pockets? Uh, Health care? All of the traditional issues that, that are there. The, a lot of the criticism, however, that's been, uh, I suppose, I think rightly given to Democrats is uh, they haven't really articulated a coherent vision. They've really been strong on attacking the president, but they haven't done an awful lot to establish what they're all about. Uh, and indeed, that will be crucial if they're going to win the White House back in 2020. Some of the big stories maybe that are in the backdrop here, Larry, are that of Brett Kavanaugh's nomination and this story that people have come to know as the uh, migrant caravan where there's many trying to enter into the United States. So immigration continues to be a big issue and uh, many people seem quite upset with how Donald Trump, his response to that particular issue. Yeah, I'll I'll take the the Kavanaugh one first, uh, is that that certainly seems to have have, uh, gotten more Republicans excited uh, about the election. They think that their man was wrongly treated and they want to take it out on some of the Democrats in Congress. So uh, Republicans will be happy with that, with the sense that their voters, their base uh, are more enthusiastic. Now, what's happening on the the southern border of the United States uh, is really worrying for a whole number number of different reasons. And this involves those caravans of people largely from Central America uh, who are making their way toward the southern border. And they're really worrying 
pot is that the president has escalated this by saying uh, that 5,000 uh, troops, 5,000 armed active duty military personnel are going to go down to the border uh, and defend the border, the, I suppose, the integrity of the, the border in the United States. Uh, that presents all sorts of worrying scenarios. Uh, and I think all we can do is really hope uh, that cooler heads prevail and that this is diffused somehow. Uh, but um, politically, the president has clearly calculated that uh, for him, uh, it's a good idea to stoke up some fears. It's a good idea to get people exercised about the issue of immigration. He thinks that that will benefit Republicans in close battles. The issue, though, is most people, even if they're opposed to immigration, most people don't vote on the issue of immigration. And the chaos that could ensue could ultimately have the neg- a negative effect for President Trump. In terms then, Larry, of just the atmosphere in the U.S., have you, have you got a sense of that at the moment? Because uh, when it comes to Donald Trump, certainly one word that always comes to mind is it, it's definitely portrayed in the media anyway as just being very polarized. Is that the case with the midterms? Yeah, I think that there is a, a lot of polarization. I think that uh, on the left, I think that people are very much viewing this as an opportunity to go out uh, and send a message that they are very angry about the Trump presidency and that they want, uh, they want to change. Uh, I think that's the impetus on the left. And we do see, for instance, that the turnout numbers, at least in early voting, uh, appear to suggest that it's going to be a good election uh, for Democrats. Uh, on the flip side, uh, the Republican Party, I think, is in something of, a, of two minds on this. Do they double down uh, on Trump? Is, is the Republican Party Donald Trump's party, or is it something different than that? And you get different answers to that question uh, within the party itself and among the candidates who are seeking re-election. And they're all positioning themselves vis-a-vis uh, how, how popular Trump might be uh, in their individual jurisdiction. Um, the question then becomes, what will the people make of all of this? What will happen uh, on the 6th of November? And it's trite to say it, but turnout is going to be dispositive. Usually turnout in midterms hovers around 40% as opposed to 60% in presidential election years. Uh, if the turnout goes higher than that, then I, I'd expect it to be a very good day for Democrats. You mentioned uh, earlier on, Larry, and of course uh, turnout, as you mentioned rightly, could also have an impact that generally uh, the, the incumbent gets a kick. And would you say in this particular midterm elections that uh, certain cohorts are really hoping for that kick to be extra strong in relation to Donald Trump and people's attitude to him. Oh, there's no question about it. I mean, look, Donald Trump uh, has people who are sworn enemies of his and, uh, in my view, take the criticism too far in, my, in, the, in the sense that they blame him for everything uh, that goes wrong in the United States. And while I'm not a supporter of the president, I think that that takes a, a step way too far. So they will certainly be energized, and that's why they're working hard. For instance, just by way of example, uh, I've received three phone calls from the United States uh, making sure that I've cast a ballot from overseas. So the Democratic Party appears to be very kind of working this as hard as they can. They appear to be as motivated as they can. The question still is, uh, turnout usually is low. And will young people, will women, will ethnic minorities and racial minorities, will they go to the polls? That is going to tell the tale at the end of the day. Interestingly, just as you mentioned, young people, I saw, was it the pop singer Taylor Swift when she did an Instagram post about, you know, getting young people to vote. Apparently hundreds of thousands of young people uh, registered on that day. So maybe this 
will be the, the midterms that actually does exercise certain parts of American society to actually increase turnout. Yeah, well, if there's anyone who could generate that kind of reaction, uh, it's Donald Trump. It's a, the, 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 I suppose, the anger and the opposition to Donald Trump in certain quarters uh, is so strong that it can have that impact. On the other hand, however, um, you know, you have to look at the, the reality that Trump's base is pretty fired up. I mean, he's packing rallies around the country. His approval rating has actually strengthened uh, in recent weeks and months. Uh, as I said earlier, the Kavanaugh hearings uh, have got Republicans eager to vote, and they, there's a lot of figures that they would point to, both in terms of uh, turnout and in terms of raising money, that Republicans would be happy with. At the end of the day, uh, if I'm looking at this from a point of view of making a prediction, my guess is that the Democrats are going to retake the, the House of Representatives narrowly, uh, but that Republicans will hold the Senate, uh, and that's largely because of the number the senators who are up for re-election this year. There's an awful lot of Democrats from red states, for instance. The map, generally speaking, is more favorable for Republicans, so I'd expect the, a split result. Larry, thanks as always for that excellent analysis there. That is Larry Donnelly. He's a law lecturer at NUI Goy and indeed writes often for the journal.ie and irishcentral.com. Say that my next guest is well travelled would be a gross understatement, and a lot of the places he has gone to wouldn't necessarily appear on TripAdvisor's most popular destinations. In fact, his vision of Europe one for Christ led him many times behind the Iron Curtain during the Cold War, something he continued doing even after experiencing arrest, torture, and imprisonment. He's coming to Ireland next week to speak at the Full Gospel Businessmen's All Ireland Conference, which is on in Newry on the 9th of November. On the line to tell us more, we have David Hatt. The way. David, good morning to you. Oh, good morning. Well, we're very interested in hearing about the work that you have been doing of late. But first, you might just tell us a little bit about your experience in Czechoslovakia. Tell us how long you spent in jail, what it was like and how you ended up there in the first place. Well, the reason I was arrested in Czechoslovakia was because I was on my way uh, with two tons of Bibles for Russia. And uh, normally I was getting through the borders OK, but on this occasion... The KGB must have been waiting for me and uh, arrested me at the border. And, uh, of course, I was put in prison. I was there for four months. Then I was on trial. The sentence was five years for Bible smuggling and five years for preaching the gospel in the communist countries. (laughs) That was a pretty rough experience. But the miracle is this. I believe in the power of prayer. I prayed that God would work a miracle, and I was released after only one year, not ten, by the British Prime Minister. This is 45 years ago. It was Harold Wilson. In terms of, I suppose, David, most people hearing your story would say, okay, perhaps after that experience you would say, maybe I'll just go home now and I'll I'll try and live my faith out in a different way. But that's not what happened with you. Well, the thing is, uh, as you say, most people wanted me not to go back. Uh, the churches didn't, my family didn't, but I'd already been working over there. I was traveling in the communist countries from 1961. I was arrested in 1972, but I knew my work was only just beginning. So I did go back and continued to go back and uh worked over there and the the surprising thing was I in the end they seemed to respect me more because of my imprisonment and I was able to hold fairly large crusade missions even under communism 
But then, of course, when the freedom came, it meant that, that uh, we, I just had a complete freedom in all these communist countries, which I still have. In fact, I've just returned from Moscow a few days ago, and shortly before that, I was in Ukraine. And then what happened next, David, after, after that time? How did your work continue? Well, it continued. I couldn't do so much Bible smuggling, um, although I was still associated with those who did it. But my real call was to, to evangelism, and I was able to evangelize in uh, big football stadiums. Then God gave me a tremendous vision that the Iron Curtain would open. I held a big conference in West Germany and brought 4,000 people from all over the East and from the West in the conference. And amazingly, shortly afterwards, the Iron Curtain opened and I was able to go back in with even more freedom. But to me, one of the most exciting things is what's happening now. Firstly, I was in Moscow last October and uh, a social scientist, a professor, and who's an associate of Putin, announced publicly, spoke to me privately and announced publicly that uh, in the chaos that came 30 years ago when communism ended, and remember, uh, these countries, the communist countries were killing the Christians, and he said that in the chaos that came 30 years ago, it was only the preaching of the gospel that saved Russia from chaos. Now, that's a tremendous testimony. It's an incredible testimony. And And now what we're doing is about three years ago when I saw the, the difficulty with the war in East Ukraine and I saw the politicians and the military couldn't solve it, I called all the churches together and succeeded in getting every single denomination with 10,000 people. And it was so powerful that even the president of the Ukraine, Poroshenko, recognized it. Firstly, he gave me a gold watch to thank me. But then um, to see um, 20 different denominations, all the denominations, Catholic, uh, all the versions of the Orthodox, the Baptists, the Methodists, the Pentecostal, the Charismatic, the Adventists, all of them, 20 different denominations on the platform, publicly confessing Christ. And the president declared the 28, this is Ukraine, the president declared that this year would be the year of the Bible. Did you ever imagine, thinking of, say, a country like the Ukraine 15 or 20 years ago, could you ever have imagined, God obviously had, David, that that would be the situation you would find yourself in? No, no one could imagine it. I mean, this is why, now looking back over those years, I just thank God that I was in the prison. Thank God I was able to pay pay the price and still go back. And that's why they look at me. I'm 86 years old. I was... (laughs) and people are so amazed that I've actually got more energy now than I had um, 30 years ago you obviously do because you still do so much fantastic evangelistic work and you're going to be in Ireland next week tell us a little bit about what you're going to be doing and what you're going to be talking about David well of course I shall be talking about what God is doing and how powerful it is that Um, God can work now so powerfully in countries which 
denied everything to do with God. And to say that we've called all the churches together in Ukraine, there's no other country in the world where this has happened. And it's giving me a challenge for Britain and a challenge for Ireland. And I would love to see all the denominations coming together in Ireland, North and South, to see what God can do, because there are problems. And the only way we can resolve them is through prayer. So I'm not looking at the past. I'm saying the past is only an illustration of what God can do in the future. That's what I'm going to be talking about. In terms of just maybe, and I know there's, there's so much you could say on that topic, and indeed it's something we're so committed to, and I've seen so many great strides here in Spirit Radio in terms of bringing so many different Christian denominations together. And I think a lot of people, David, they really have a heart for it, and they really want that in their parishes, in their communities, um, but sometimes find it a little bewildering as to where to start. Where is a good place to start? Well, you start sometimes you start at the bottom. In the Ukraine, um, I started just with getting a a small number. Uh, Sorry. Uh, Sorry about that, but I I, I started with just getting a few people in the Ukraine, and that's what we're going to have to do in Ireland. So it starts small, and as you say, it has to start with prayer as well. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us on Spirit Radio this morning, and do hope that your time in Ireland is Sorry about that interruption. (laughs) Don't worry about it. That was David Hathaway there, and David is going to be speaking at the full Gospel Business Men's All-Ireland Conference in Newry on Friday the 9th of November. He's also going to be speaking at St. Anne's Cathedral in Belfast on Monday the 12th of November at 8 (laughs) p.m. Well, many would have described it as a pretty low-key presidential election, and of course, turnout was also pretty low as well. But there was one surprise in that one of the many challengers to President Michael D. Higgins, while not, of course, ousting him from the aura, certainly broke from the pack in a pretty dramatic way when you look at, over such a short period of time, how his popularity rose, because he started off in the polls at around 1%. That's businessman Peter Casey, and he garnered eventually 23.25% of first preference votes. Um, That's way ahead of the third place candidate, Sean Gallagher, who got 6.41%. So what is the explainer behind this dramatic performance? Was it all just a case of all publicity is good publicity? And does Peter Casey's campaign actually deserve a closer look? Is it saying something about the political appetite currently in Ireland at the moment? On the line to give us his thoughts, we have columnist with the Irish Independent, Ian O'Doherty. Ian, good morning to you. Morning, Maddie. How are you? Okay, first of all, what did you think about this result? Were you surprised? I think everybody was surprised. I mean, um, showing what a genius political predictor I am. Uh, I had a piece in last Tuesday basically talking about how he was probably going to come last. Um... And then he came out with the remarks. And I've genuinely never seen... He went... Like, when I wrote about him last Tuesday, he was hovering between 1% and 2%. And then I wrote about him yesterday. And he'd come second on 23%. Um, That's a 20% bump in a week. Actually, in less than a week. He got it in about three or four days. Um, It's just... It's unparalleled in presidential elections. But the important thing to remember is that he still lost. Uh, This is the, the, the way the media and the way people have been reacting... He is the outlier. He's the big story of the election. I think there's two main things. Um, I think a lot of people who voted for him were very happy to see him polling so strongly. They're also 
perhaps quite happy that he didn't actually win. I mean, this is the. So you think it was kind of a protest vote? I think this is one of the best examples of a protest vote uh, that we've seen probably in this country in the last twenty years, and in the sense that. Also, as well, he was also the candidate who looked like he was the only one who was enjoying himself. So basically, he made it in a weird way. He both the media and himself conspired to make it quite an appealing vote as a two fingers to the establishment. I don't think you, you can turn around and say that three hundred twenty thousand people are just racist. I mean, the first start there's a debate about whether he, it's relevant to apply the phrase racism uh, to travellers, but I do think there is undoubtedly a degree of prejudice towards them. Like only a fool would deny that. But when you the fascinating thing about Casey's results is that when you break down the data and you look at where he polled the strongest in places that tend to have very high density of traveller populations and stuff like that. So the thing is, people in my job, people in the media, we can turn around, we can smear all the people who voted for him, we can sneer at them, we can call them racist, we can call them rednecks, we can call them whatever you want. Um, but what they should be doing is learning the lesson from Trump. That basically when Trump won, the media piled in on all the, you know, the basket of deplorables who voted for him. And really, they have helped to conspire to ensure that Trump, unless he gets impeached, will probably actually win the second term. And I was, I've actually, I've been grimly amused by the Irish media not learning these lessons. And that's the thing is, is, is I think for those who voted for Peter Casey, it's, it's, it, I wonder, is one of the reasons they voted for him the very reaction that those voters were given after the results? And by that I mean the kind of sneering reaction of a certain cohort in Irish society who are always hysterical and always permanently offended, kind of the, the new thought police, if you like, saying, yeah. you know, how dare you break ranks with the, cult, the new kind of cultural orthodoxy of Ireland. But isn't it that very attitude that might actually have been part of the reason people voted for him in the first place? Well, I mean, I've, I've said this for a long time, and 30 years ago, a lot of these columnists would have been priests and nuns, and they would have been the priests and nuns that nobody likes. You know what I mean? They, they just, they have it in the, it's in their nature to be authoritarian, and it's in their nature to be smug, and it's in their nature to be arrogant, and it's in their nature to talk down to people and to tell them what to think. And really, in the last few years, um, with things like Trump and Brexit, I know it sounds like it's such a cliche just to keep on going back to those two things, but those two things were the two most seismic political moments of either your life or mine. And I think what they have done is that they've liberated a lot of people to go, you know, there's been a backlash coming against political correctness. There's been a backlash coming against sort of political orthodoxy. And you think and that's what it's about? I think. And it's been, it's, it's been coming, though. It's been coming for, uh, I honestly think, about seven or eight years. And I was waiting. There was just going to have to be one of those moments in time. Now... The thing is, when I mean, people are saying that Casey's a bit like, you know, sort of the Irish Trump, what I was saying at the end of it was that he could very well be a, bit, be a bit more like the Irish Ross Perot, who, if you remember from the 90s, who was a billionaire, came from nowhere, freaked out the American establishment, took a load of votes from the main candidates, and then kind of disappeared again. So I think it's kind of, it's a case of, it's, I think Casey would love to be a Trump-esque kind of figure, but it's, in many ways... Is it, is it kind of a scary indictment, though, just of kind of modern-day discourse that when somebody just kind of uh, breaks ranks with the kind of stranglehold of political correctness and people kind of say, OK, I kind of like that about this person, that that's kind of seen as this almost extreme, and then these comparisons to the likes of, of President Trump. Look, it's, it's one of the things that really depresses me at times about the, the, the trade that I work in, and I consider it a trade, not a profession, um, the ju journalism. One of the things that really depresses me at times is when you hear journalists say one thing on radio or write something, when I know for a fact they don't hold that opinion in private. So I think there's a, there's a, as much as there's a groupthink in general society, there's a groupthink in the media, and there's a groupthink in the media in England and in America as well. And I think there's a massive disconnect that's growing 
between an awful lot of journalists and an awful lot of the people who buy the papers where they've consistently just got things completely wrong and then continue to insult the people who vote in a way that they don't approve. Now, if if this if this presidential election hadn't been going on, hadn't been taking place until say this Friday, if Casey had had another week, now I still don't think he would have won. But then again, I didn't think he was going to come second anyway. So you know, only a fool would try and predict anything. But I do think he probably would have got another couple of hundred thousand votes. And rather than turning around and running around and screaming that the sky is falling and we've become a nation of racists and bigots and we're all sort of you know obsessed with anti-traveller sentiment, the sensible thing to do for people would be to go, well, why did so many people vote like that? Why did so many people vote like that in the areas that have a high density of travellers? And rather than turning around and maybe, you know, insulting them and sneering them and just annoying them, uh, maybe might actually listen to what they have to say. I mean, I thought Leo Varadkar had a very bad election um, with his interventions that every time he spoke about Casey, every time he kind of looked down on Casey and said, I, I don't condone anti-traveller votes or whatever. Um, well, a lot of people just went... We don't care. Don't be telling us what to think. And like, there was a survey that came out in the States uh, only two weeks ago that 80% of Americans across all ages and all backgrounds, so it's not just sort of old white Americans or anything, it was a, it was a Pew survey done across all the demographics. 80% of Americans have said that they're sick of what political correctness has become. And, and the kind of constraints of that. And do you think, is that something that, I mean, what, what could you call them, causative elites uh, in different sectors, whether it's politics or media, that, uh, you know, that's kind of, people, I think, feel that it's dominating Irish life in terms of this political correctness. And therefore, and, you know, if you if you go against what's considered to be PC, you're basically beaten down as ill-informed or you're a moron or you're a bigot. Or you're fired. Yeah. Or you lose your job. Yeah. With Kevin Myers and George Hook. Mm-hmm. You know, and again, a lot of people I think will look back at the hysteria that's around Kevin and George, and I think they pretty feel a bit embarrassed now. Um, look, the Irish have always been sheep. We've always liked to follow whether it was the church telling us what to do, or whether it was the Brits telling us what to do, or whether it was the EU telling us what to do. And now the media, and as, as some people call it, the media academic political complex. Um, it's a very small bubble, but people who by and large know each other. Um, come from the same schools, went to the same colleges, had the same lectures. It's a very, for the people who talk about diversity, they're an incredibly homogenous group. Um, I just wanted to ask you your opinion, Ian, just on, do, do you think that this will, result will have an impact on Irish politics in general? I mean, there was a moment in the campaign, and I heard Peter Casey himself talking about it in the, in the aftermath of the result, where all the presidential candidates were asked the question, would you allow a halting site to be built beside your house? Okay, um, and, and if we try for a second and just leave, leave aside the issue of those in the travelling community, what happened next was he was the only one who said no, and the rest of them, did, he, he he basically said he felt that they weren't telling the truth in their answer. In yep. other words, um, when difficult questions are asked, where perhaps uh, people at home listening or watching will, will be uh, feeling in a, a particular way, and they know the people they're listening to are telling porkies, or they're putting, as you've said, you know, they're putting across one opinion when they hold another one privately. Are people going to stand for that any longer, do you think? <coughs> I don't think so, because I do think there's a... There's a we're in a very strange little bubble in time in the West. Um, a lot of the political establishments across all the countries in the West are kind of crumbling. And, you know, there, there's a mutant, there's an air of mutiny in the air amongst the voters. And I don't think Casey will necessarily be the man to capture that lightning in a bottle, if you like. And I, I, I don't, I couldn't see Casey really being cut out for the boring work of being a TD. I think, he, you know, he's a bomb thrower. 
but that's not to say that he hasn't opened the door for somebody else to come through. I think the really good result of how high he placed was that he terrified many of my colleagues in the media. And that can only be a good thing because they've been too smug and too certain and too dismissive and condescending of people for far too long. And it's the thing I, you know, I mean, I've noticed that even over the last 10 or 15 years that the job that, you know, I'm working class and from Crumlin, um, the job has become almost entirely uh, middle class college graduates of the same classes and the same lecturers. And so that's, so I think a lot of the time, even the, whether it's the younger politicians or whether it's the journalists or what, and academics now on Twitter, they've kind of, they control Twitter, you know, gender studies and things like that from UCD. Um, they're all part of the same group and they all just look down on everybody else. And the thing about it is what they never seem to learn. And I was saying this in the piece in, in the op-ed in uh, the end of yesterday, you know, for, for the so-called intelligentsia, they can be remarkably stupid and seem to show a remarkable unwillingness or incapability of actually learning. And the thing, the most important thing is that they can sneer from their Irish Times columns or whatever all they want, but at the end of the day, their vote only counts the same as somebody's down in Rathkeel. And so they can say, you know, you, you, you can live in the media bubble or you can live in the political bubble all you want, but the joy of democracy and the, the, the brilliant thing about democracy is that their vote counts for no more than anybody else's. It's just up to you to go out and do it. And I think a lot of people, don't forget as well, I mean, it was this was an election that was basically in a coma up until the Monday when Casey made those uh, remarks. Apathy surrounding it, for sure. You know, so basically I think people were looking for something. And, I mean, I thought it was interesting that, I mean, uh, I was accused, and other journalists were accused of giving Casey the oxygen of publicity just by writing about it and writing about the reaction. But, I mean, you know, that, that really is like watching the weather after the news and then blaming the weatherman because it's going to snow that night. You know what I mean? It's like we're journalists. We have to cover the story. And it's this idea that if we don't talk about Casey, the, you know, the, the great unwashed, the unlovely masses out there, they won't hear his awful ideas and therefore they won't vote for him. Whereas actually, no, sorry, this is democracy. Everybody's entitled. If he's running, he's entitled to say what he wants. And I think a lot of people, and this has been forgotten by some, a lot of people's backs were up when other politicians and, and the, the, the media and academics demanded that Casey withdraw from the race. Do you remember that was that came out the yeah, first and day? And he kind of said, I'm going to go away and think about it. And um, but no, but when, when, when people, when Pavi pointed that, demanded that he withdrew, um, and they did that the day before he said he was going to uh, back out and think. But I know a lot of people were very annoyed by the, by the sheer arrogance of the people demanding that he withdraw, as if it was sort of, you know, delete your Twitter account, you know, withdraw from the presidential race. And basically, a lot of people who, the, the silent majorities are very silent because they couldn't be bothered because they're going around living their life and there's more important things in this country than presidential elections. But every now and then, the stars align. And Casey came along, and I don't know whether he, he said the wrong thing at the right thing at the wrong time or, or what he did, but he just, and he blundered into this. I mean, he's not some sort of, you know, political genius. He blundered into this one. He's, he hit a nerve. And what magnified or what amplified that was the, was the negative pylon against them. Yeah, well, yeah, it's interesting. So it would be interesting to see if there is a knock-on effect. Ian, thanks a million for joining us on the programme. For your thoughts this morning, that's Ian O'Doherty, columnist with the Irish Independent, wrote an opinion piece on what we were talking about yesterday, just in relation to Peter Casey, and going from that 1% to 23%, I think you can catch that article online. 
something that happens to me on a quite a regular basis when I'm chatting to people who maybe don't know me that well and they realise that my faith is important to me, that I'm a Christian woman. Uh, they often ask me, oh, well, do you feel like a second-class citizen? Uh, which makes me furrow my brow because my experience, certainly as a, a, a Christian woman, being very uh, who loves my faith very much and being involved with lots of different things in the church, my experience has been profoundly the opposite of perhaps the perception that people might have. Well, there was a very interesting conference that took place last Friday and it was looking it was looking at women and their role in the church and it had various different speakers just sharing a little bit about their faith journey and their reflections and it seemed to have been a very interesting conference indeed but it just got us thinking here this morning at Spirit Radio about that that we need to have that discussion more about women uh, and our role in the church how that's changing does it need to change more well one of the people who was involved with that particular con- conference who was moderating many of the discussions you'll know her very well she's a secondary school teacher and a columnist with the Irish Times and also writes for the Irish Catholic as well joins me on the line Brida O'Brien good morning to you Good morning, Wendy. So, Brida, tell us a little bit about uh, your experience at this conference. I think for those, for a lot of people who maybe are a bit disconnected from the Christian faith, if they heard about kind of uh, a, a, an enriching discussion from lots of different women from from different kind of backgrounds sharing the love of their faith, they might be surprised. Yeah, it was a really positive day, um, and I suppose there were between uh, maybe sixty and seventy women there. Um, attending and the format of the day is that it was very, very interactive. And I, I, um, it might sound odd in a conference on women, women in the church, but something I found very cheering is that a lot of men came along as well because sometimes I think this is seen as, oh, for women only, but in fact it's really important for both men and women that they look at their, at their role and that they look at their faith. And the speakers are from very diverse backgrounds. Um, we had a French woman, um, uh, Benedicte Boulot, um, who's looking at her experience in a, a ecumenical community called Shaman Neuf, which is um, is a, a really interesting community. And uh, she was looking at the whole idea of complementarity between men and women, which is, I think, something that we're almost afraid to say in case that it sounds like we're saying, oh, well, men and women are complementary, but, um, you know, they have things that they can bring to each other, almost as if we're saying, well, that automatically means women have to have a very rigid stereotyped role. And she was making it very clear that's not the case. And then there was um, a speaker from St. Andrew's School of Divinity, um, Dr. Rebecca Lamb, who's from Toronto originally. And she was looking at fantastic women in the church, going way back to the Middle Ages, to Hildegard of Bingen, who was, who was just this incredible woman. With she, There seemed to be absolutely nothing that the woman couldn't turn her hand to, whether it was music or um, running a hospital or... Um, you know, she was a tremendous woman of faith and prayer as well. But she also looked at a woman um, of the 20th century, um, Catherine Doherty, who set up these places called Madonna House, which are basically kind of houses of friendship. Um, and many of them were set up in Canada, but they've, they're now all over the world. And it was just, it was just really, it was just a really um, positive. Now, it, people weren't glossing over the difficulties, but but there was this tremendous interaction between the panel and um, everybody who was present, and there was just such interest, I think. People had such interest in what was happening. In terms of um, and your Catholic woman, Brida, Pope Francis oh. has spoken a, a lot about this, about women in the church. Have you been pleased to hear what he said? Do you think, we're, do you think that uh, we're moving in the right direction just in terms of, particularly in particular roles, are we being more inclusive of women? 
Yes, um, the odd thing is that in some ways um, the church went backwards, and this was all the churches um, after the Middle Ages, because women had much more central roles um, up until the mid- the, even the late Middle Ages. Uh, and it's great, um, for example, I often think of Catherine of Siena, who was an amazing, fiery laywoman. A lot of people think that she was a religious sister, but she wasn't. She was a laywoman who was kind of uh, writing letters to popes and princes and, and suggesting how they could um, get their act together. Um, uh, so I think it's wonderful that there's this new emphasis uh, on uh, women in the church. And I think Francis really is keen to see what he calls the feminine genius. Um, he didn't invent that phrase, but he uses it a lot. You know, the, specifically, the specific contribution that women can bring to the church. And he's taken a lot of practical steps himself. For example, he appointed the first woman director of the Vatican Museum, which I think is uh, one of the biggest museums in the world, has six million visitors a year. The first woman director of Bambina Jesu, which is the third biggest pediatric hospital in the world. Um, uh, the, he is uh, the, the, the first deputy um, director of the communications office in the Vatican. He has appointed two extraordinarily qualified married women um, to roles in, in family and, and life in, in the Vatican. So I think, um, now obviously, um, it's not all about that, because for most of us, we don't aspire to, to roles in the Vatican. What we actually want is a way to live out our faith in our everyday life. How have you found your experience, Prita, just bringing it back to that, just uh, as a woman living out your faith in everyday life? Is it an enriching experience? I imagine challenging at times as well. It is a very enriching experience, and maybe that's something we don't talk about enough. Um, we often talk about religion as if it were some kind of species of politics, and it's all about having positions of power. But, I mean, I have friends right across the Christian churches in, in all sorts of different parishes, Catholic parishes, Church of Ireland parishes, and like women are the wind in the sails of, of virtually every parish, and we would be becalmed without them um, but I mean, it's it's not all sweetness and life either. I think I think struggle and doubt are part of a lot of um, many uh, women's experience. And I know for myself that um, I had uh, a miscarriage after my first child, and it was a very dark time. And I wish I could say that you know my faith was a great comfort to me, but actually I found myself almost almost rejecting the idea of the goodness of God because I thought, how could anyone let a little baby like this die? And I had a very bleak period um, at that time. And I suppose my husband was a great support to me. Um, friends were a great support to me. And there wasn't any great moment where I kind of said, well, I'm back. I now trust in the goodness of God again. But it was kind of just a gradual, I suppose once the grieving period, the acute grieving period was over, I was able to... I think to to put my faith in God again, but if, while, while the while the faith journey is is not all sweetness and light, and there's difficulties and struggles in it, I can't imagine what my life would have been like without without my faith. It, it gives just a huge horizon to my life. It it manages to to you know for me to take my focus off myself and to look to something greater and something bigger. In terms of, um, it's something that I touched on in the introduction, Brida, that sometimes women are, are referred to or people think that women in the church are second-class citizens. How do you feel about that assumption? Um, it, it, it actually hasn't been my experience um, as women being second-class citizens. But I know some women do feel like that. And I think one of the big problems is that 
cler- is clericalism. Now, I, I believe that there's a, a particular role for ordained people, and I in no way wish to take away from that. But that's different to, to clericalism. Clericalism is where, in a sense, is an abuse of, of that role, where, you, you know, it's used in an authoritarian way or it's used in a way, you know, that's not the way that Jesus would have modeled. Um, Jesus uh, washed his disciples' feet and he told them that the greatest of them had to be like a little child. So where people have experienced clericalism, I think it's important to call it out as a sin, to say that it's wrong and that it shouldn't be happening. But in a sense, we should all be in a competition to see how we can serve better um, rather than, you know, how we can lord it over others. Like, that's a very, very clear mandate uh, of the Gospels. Um, And there is always a danger, I think, of... Um, you know, the church being perceived as a boys' club. But but as I said earlier, you know, in parishes, women are the wind in the sails. And um, there's a great story told by a columnist. It's not a story, but um, it's, a, it's a comment made by a common, columnist in Commonweal magazine. And he talks about a friend of his, a woman, who jokes that if all the women withdrew their labor... Um, in the morning that the church would grind to a halt in two weeks. And he says, she always laughs as he says that. And uh, this man who's who's an ordained priest says, I I never laugh, he says. The prospect of women, um, you know, withdrawing from the church terrifies me because I know how important they are. And and I think that if we we have confidence in, in our role as women, that we're not honorary men, you know, we are women and that we have our own contribution, our own really vital contribution to make. So that's, that's, that sustains us and keeps us going, I think. A lovely positive note to finish on, Breda. Thanks so much for joining us on Spirit Radio this morning. That is teacher and columnist with the Irish Times, Breda O'Brien. As you may have heard in our news, the Pakistani Christian woman, Asia Bibi, who's been on death row in Pakistan for the last eight years, has been acquitted following a ruling by the Pakistan Supreme Court following an appeal by Asia Bibi's legal team. One of the organisations that have been highlighting her case has been the Christian charity Aid to the Church in Need. And Steve Johnson has just been talking to John Pontifex, Head of Press and Information at Aid to the Church in Need. And this is what he had to say about this breaking news. The news is that this morning uh, the Supreme Court of Pakistan announced the acquittal of Asya Bibi, who has been in jail, uh, accused of blasphemy and found guilty of blasphemy back in 2010, and she's been on death row and in solitary confinement. And this morning she was uh, awoken with the news that she would indeed be freed. And uh, this is something that we at Aid to the Church in Need have been campaigning for alongside many, many other organizations and individuals who want justice. And at last, justice is going to be served in this, in this case. John, do you know, did the Supreme Court explain their judgment? We have not seen any of the documentation come through. Uh, we are waiting for that to be sent through. Uh, but, it, but it's clear that it comes after a final hearing that took place on the 8th of October. And it comes against a backdrop in which uh, the initial uh, circumstances of the, the court uh, were very unclear. And the actual case um, against her was very uh, undefined, ill-defined, uh, and as such rested on uh, shaking foundations. And I suspect it's those uh, shaking foundations that were exposed in this particular process uh, within the Supreme Court, and that in turn has led to this wonderful uh, outcome that we've heard today. John, do we know where Asia Bibi is now, and um, what is her condition, and what is her reaction to this news? 
Well, we know that she has been in a prison in Multan in the southern part of the Punjab province for a number of years now. She's been in solitary confinement. She's been in a situation where her family can only visit her for 50 minutes at any one sitting. Uh, they have to drive six hours to get to see her, see her for 15 minutes uh, and then uh, are, are told to go. And uh, we know that when she heard the news, um, she was uh, just couldn't believe it. There was a report that came through indicating her uh, amazement that indeed uh, her long-awaited freedom was, was about to come about. Um, so uh, we have also heard that there have been concerns about her mental health, and at times there have been issues to do with her physical health. But the family were with us in aid to the church in need here in the UK, and they had seen her uh, just a few days before flying over to the UK, and they said at that point uh, she seemed in very strong form and uh, that she had indicated that uh, she would rather die than abandon her faith. So uh, she was absolutely up to her usual form of being a very defiant and very faithful individual. John, what, what do you think Asia Bibi and her family will do next? They have to work out a way to ensure that at the moment when she is actually released, uh, that she's not going to be lynched by a mob. We, it's hard for us to imagine this over here in the West, but she um, is at a direct risk of being lynched by uh, thousands of people uh, who actually have been baying for her blood. That's not too strong a term. Um, these are people who believe that she should be killed and that the state has an absolute obligation to do that. And furthermore, according to their way of looking uh, at, at their, uh, their system of, of law and justice, uh, it's incumbent upon them as individuals to, to carry out law uh, and justice by, by themselves with their own hands. So the, the main objective for, for them is to get her out safely, to get her uh, into a place where her security is assured. And it will come as no surprise to anyone who's been following this uh, for me to tell you that uh, clearly they are seeking a new life for her and the family outside of Pakistan. Uh, and that's something they've got to work on uh, at top speed now because uh, the process um, going forward is going to be tricky. And uh, they'll need all the help and support and prayers that they can possibly get. Are there concerns for the Christian community in the, the part of Pakistan where, where Asia Bibi is from? This is a really important question, Steve, and it's, um, it's important because going forward we have to have concerns about how things are going to break here on in. Um, the sense of anger uh, will be total among the uh, Christian community uh, in, in terms of how they're going to be treated potentially by the, the, the extremist groups. Uh, that extremist group uh, will no doubt be uh, seeking to take revenge in some way, shape or form and in the absence of being able to get at the justice uh, and whoever else they deem as responsible for this particular outcome, they will actually go for the local Christian community and others almost certainly. So there are concerns and we have to hope that the security is is beefed up to ensure uh, their, their safety because there, there could be a very bad backlash. Just have one other question, uh, John. You met and you saw in London Asia Bibi's uh, husband and daughter speaking. Her daughter was just, I think, nine years old when her mother was taken away. That's correct, yes. How do you kind of anticipate what it's going to be like um, for this family when they're reunited? Well, um, when she's spoken to us here at ACN about 
uh, her mother, um, Isham, uh, her daughter, now aged 18, uh, becomes very emotional. And uh, that is entirely appropriate, entirely to be expected. You have to imagine uh, what it might be like for, for a young girl who hasn't been able to hug her mother, to actually physically have have contact with her um, for 10 years. And now that is going to happen. And uh, the emotions will be running really, really high for her. And uh, she has herself to think about a, a new future, a very different future, mm. a future without um, this this uh, potential death sentence um, actually taking place. So um, th- there's an urgent need for all of us to keep her and all the family in our prayers because it's going to be a difficult transition. John Pontifex, Head of Press and Information at Aid to the Church in Need, thank you so much for sharing with us this good news this morning. Not at all. Thank you for your concern. Thank you for all you've done to cover this. That, that kind of engagement has is, is been part and parcel of the process that's led to this outcome. Thanks for listening to our Spirit Radio podcast. Don't miss out. Subscribe today. Find out how at spiritradio.ie.